We're continuing in our series in Exodus. We come this morning to the 28th chapter, and our New Testament complementary passage is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, hear God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 28, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. And bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastplate, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together, and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and six of their names on the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold like twisted cords, And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet, scarlet yarns and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, 
and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve names with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edge of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breast piece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it to the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in a checkerwork of fine linen. And you shall make a turban of fine linen. And you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to your word. We pray that you would speak, show us our sin, our Savior, and your glorious beauty. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. 
So I began the worship service by asking the question, what do you think of when you think of priest? What is the visual that comes into your mind? I was talking with a friend about this series on the tabernacle and, and, and just how, how I'm, I'm enriched by my study of it. I'm, I'm just relishing my time in this portion of God's Word. And it's not a portion of God's Word that's new to me. It's probably not new to you. I've read it over and over and over again in my read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans. Uh, these are the passages where your diligence uh, is tested. If you actually are going to read through the Bible in a year, this is where the kind of stuff that you've got to motor through to, to get to the quote-unquote good stuff. But I think coming at this passage from a different perspective opens up some intriguing questions for us. And the different, in, the, the different perspective, at least for me, this was a, this was a kind of a shift for me, and I want, I, I hope that you are already there and this is not a shift for you, but at least for me, as I read all of this stuff and the ephod and the gold and these stones and those stones and the inscription and the rings, it sounds totally irrelevant. Doesn't it? Is Moses writing a manual for how to make your own tabernacle? Is Moses writing instructions so that you can go home and either in your own home or as a vacation Bible school project produce the exact thing that is so carefully and clearly laid out here? What's the purpose of this text? And I think the reason that we kind of get lost in the weeds in this stuff is because we're not addressing the purpose of it. This is not a how-to manual for how to build your own tabernacle, for how to have your own high priestly garments. This is written, the Pentateuch is written to the 12 tribes of Israel camped on the plains of Moab, preparing to enter into the promised land, preparing for a life transition and preparing for a battle, an ongoing battle of subduing this wild, idolatrous nation that God has placed them in. They've already had Aaron the high priest They've already been seeing his sons. They've already seen the priesthood for their entire life by the time these words are written down. So then why are the words written down? Why is this text in your Bible? I hope to get to some of that today. But I hope also this is an overarching theme of this entire series in God's tapestry of salvation. Because all of these details show us something powerful about the gospel. They reveal to us something glorious 
about the gospel. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds, in the, and, and I think it's speculative to, to start saying, well, the rings on this symbolize this, and the gold and this and that. I think I think we can easily get into some 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 dangerous territory once we start. You know what what does the blue represent? It's the sky. Well, why is the blue connected? Why purple? Why why all of these colors? Why these linens? Why these things? I think we get into dangerous territory. Here's what I want you to take away from chapter 28 and all of these details that we just read. Do you think it's an impressive robe? That's a fair question. Do you think it looks impressive? There's an awful lot of gold on here. <laughs> Just one of those 12 stones is a diamond. And it's a big enough diamond that the crafter can somehow, I have no idea how, but somehow carve the name of one of the tribes of Israel onto that diamond. And it's set in settings of gold. Do you think at the very least that we can walk away from Exodus chapter 28 and go, wow, I bet that was a, was a sight. I bet Aaron... When he walked out in the hot desert sun, the gold, the diamonds, the precious jewels, the different colors, he looked stunning. I think we can at least take that away from Exodus 28. Aaron looked stunning. Now, I do think that's part of the key truth that God wants us to take from this chapter. Because if you'll notice two times in this chapter, you can see it in verse 2, and then you can see it again in verse 40. In verses 2 and verse 40, this entire chunk of passage is framed by the phrase, for glory and beauty. For glory and beauty. So if God says it twice, beloved, pay attention to it. God loves beauty. He loves things that are beautiful. He could have made every tree simply a stick of wood with geometrically patterned leaves that each one is perfectly crafted to garner the, the, or to gather the greatest possible amount of sunshine, sunshine and carbon dioxide and produce the greatest amount possible of oxygen. That's essentially what a tree does. That's how a tree helps our environment. The natural ecosystem. So why do we have oak trees and pine trees and palm trees and, and whatever other trees there are, birch and oak and cherry and maple and hardwood or whatever? Why do we have all these different kinds of trees? Because God delights in beauty. What's the purpose of a seashell? 
It's to hold a slug. I mean, let's be real. That's what a snail is. It's a slug without a shell. (laughs) I'm sure there's some botanist that can tell me how wrong I am and all that. But a seashell is for the purpose of holding a slug so that it doesn't get eaten immediately by all the other stuff. Why are they beautiful? Why are they intricate? Why is each one unique? It's not for your pleasure. It's not for your enjoyment. Because by the time you and I look at them, unless you're into scuba diving, by the time you and I look at them, they're already trash. We are stunned with the beauty of God's trash. How much more the beauty of what God designs. How much more the beauty of this thing working in perfect harmony. And so for the priest, one of the central components is glory and beauty. That's going to be our first point. There's a second central component that you may have picked up on as we read through this. And that is judgment and guilt. Something about what Aaron is doing, something about Aaron's role as a priest involves judgment. Some of it is the danger of judgment upon Aaron. You, you, you heard that verse, uh, verse 35, uh, the sound of the bells are going to be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he may not die. There's something serious going on in here. There is something that could kill Aaron that is happening in his role as a priest before God. And it's not simply that God is vindictive. It's not simply that God is capricious. It's not like Aaron's going to walk in and do everything perfectly and bam, he gets hit by lightning out of the blue. There's some very focused, specific part of Aaron's work that is deadly. And it's deadly in the context of judgment. Verse 15, you shall make a breastpiece of judgment. Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes in before the Lord. Verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. And then there towards the very end of the chapter, when, when we're referring to the garment that is under the robe, they will be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. So there's clearly in this priest thing, judgment and guilt. This is a big component that comes after chapter 28. That's going to be our second point. And then our third and final point are these stones. We've seen the stones of onyx that are on each shoulder piece, but we've also seen the 12 stones that are on the breastplate. 
What is it about these stones? Now our text calls them stones of remembrance. But what is it about these stones? Why stones? What is it that God is communicating? So we're going to move through this very rapidly. And it's not for time constraints, but it's simply because I do not want to get into speculative theology. I don't want to get into things about what does the blue represent, what do the rings represent, why is it on this way, why is it not on that way, what's the deal with the turban, all of these things. I'm not, I'm not interested in getting into those kinds of details. I want to leave you with this overall glorious picture of God's priest. God's priest is glorious and beautiful. You saw that in the text? God's priest deals with judgment and guilt. You saw that in the text? And these stones that are part of what the priest is about. Did you see that in the text? So that's what we're going to focus on. The glory and the beauty. Now our catechism, shorter catechism, question 25 says... How does Christ execute the office of a priest? I'm not going to call any of you young people out immediately in front of the congregation, but you probably should know this. (laughs) Christ executes the office of a priest and is once offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin and to reconcile us to God and in his making continuous intercession for us. Two separate categories that both of them you see in the text here. Both of those things you see right here in chapter 28. What Christ Jesus does as our high priest is to sacrifice and reconcile and to intercede, to make continual intercession for us. This this visually stunning garment that he's wearing. Again, I mean, just look at verses 15, just describing the breastplate. Make a breastplate of judgment and skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you make it gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, square and doubled, set in four rows of stone, sardius, topaz, carbuncle, Emerald, sapphire, diamond, jacinth, agate, amethyst, beryl, onyx, jasper, set in gold filigree. This is a stunning, a stunning uniform. And all eyes are going to be drawn to Aaron. All right? So imagine yourself... Talking with a friend of mine uh, a week or so ago, and we were talking about the tabernacle, and you know, just kind of talking about the the things that I'm enjoying about this series and whatnot. And as we were talking about the tabernacle, he said, uh, "Apparently, there's a group in Pennsylvania somewhere that has a life-size replica of the tabernacle, and he had taken his kids to see, and and the people that put this thing on did a good, you know." 
this is what the Holy of Holies represents, and they tried to connect it to the gospel, and it was very, you know, thoughtful and well done, this, this life-size tabernacle. He said what really just took his kids over the edge is at the very end, there's an animatronic Aaron that rolls out on a track with some incense, looks at the people, and then turns around and moves on the track back in. And his kids were cracking up because it looked so ridiculous. It looked so silly. I don't think anybody ever cracked up looking at Aaron. I don't think anybody looked at this and thought, man, he looks like a clown. People looked at this and thought, wow, that's stunning. But in all of that, what do you think drew their attention the most? I've, I've just described it to you. We've just read the description. In all of that, what do you think is the most visually stunning part of Aaron's outfit? I think it's that breastplate. You've got this thing hanging front and center with diamond and topaz and the set in gold and the the names of the tribes of Israel carved on it. I think in all of that beauty and glory of the priest, the most beautiful and the most glorious is how this priest bears your name to the Holy of Holies. That's the beauty. That's the visual as well as the experiential beauty of our priest. Because you remember from last week, the tabernacle is the recreation of the Garden of Eden. We've even got the, the, the words in here. If you'll look back at Genesis chapter 2, I believe it begins in verse 14. I think it's 14 through 17 of Genesis chapter 2. It's where... The Garden of Eden is described as this place from which good gold comes. It's this place from which the good rivers come. It's this place from which the good jewels come. And two of them are listed there in Genesis chapter 2. But this place of peace, harmony with God, this place that an angel stands at the gate and says, you can't get back in here. The tabernacle is the Garden of Eden in its layout. And it is the priest who allows you and me, Adam Jr. and Eve Jr., who allows you and me to enter back into the garden to come back into that holy place, to come back into that place of fellowship and of communion with God. The glory and the beauty is particularly that intercession, that knowledge that you are represented before God by your priest. The image also of Aaron is an image of judgment and of guilt. And we looked at those verses quickly, but again, to draw us back to the Eden 
the, the, this, this unfolding of, of, of Eden. You remember at Eden, there is a gate. And it's on the east side, just like the entrance to the tabernacle is on the east. There's a gate there in Eden that is on the east. And an angel with a flaming sword bars the way. You cannot get back into that place of harmony with the world around you. You cannot get back into that place of goodness in creation. You cannot get back into that place of harmony with your fellow man. You cannot get back into that place of being right with God unless you deal with that angel. Because that angel is standing there to kill you. And here comes the priest. The priest is the one who not only intercedes for you, but truly carries your name in before the Father, into the holy place. The priest is the one who allows you to pass back through the gate of Eden and back into the garden. Now we've seen in all the other elements, it's got to be done through death. And there's this warning that, that, that pops up several times here in this chapter. And specifically, you saw it with the Aaron needs to have bells on the hem of his garments. So that you can hear him when he's moving around in the Holy of Holies. You can hear that ringing of the bells. If that ringing of the bells ever stops, God has struck Aaron dead. Why? Why would God strike Aaron dead? Because in some way, Aaron is not dealing with a holy God. You know the stories later. Nadab and Abihu, mentioned here in this text, they end up pretty badly. Why do Nadab and Abihu end up in such a mess? Dead. Because they offered strange fire. They offered strange fire before God. Later, Uzzah puts his hand onto the ark because it's about to fall off the ox cart and get shattered in pieces on the rocks. That's a good thing to do, right? The ark of the covenant is about to be broken and Uzzah steps in to take care of it. And God strikes him dead. You do not touch the ark of the covenant. This is holy. The God who made the rocks is the one who can protect the Ark of the Covenant. Not you and me and our cockiness thinking God needs a hand from us. These things are holy. And coming before God in a right manner has got to deal with that issue of holiness, of death, of judgment. There's something about what the priest does that addresses the issue of judgment from God and your and my guilt before God. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? He executes the office of a prophet of once offering of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and in his making continual intercession for us. And that's that third point. These stones, 
These stones that I think are the most visually arresting part of the entire uniform. They're called two things. They're called stones of remembrance, and it's called a breast piece of judgment. Remembering the people before God. In verse 29 of this chapter, we, we read, Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Regularly coming with the names of the tribes of Israel. Regularly coming before God. Now, there's something that I find beautiful, but also striking about the whole tabernacle idea, about the way that God sets up His worship. Do you notice how God identifies with the people of Israel? What are they living in right now? In the wilderness. They're living in tents, right? What is God living in? A tent. What's the daily routine, or at least weekly or monthly routine of the people of Israel? They gotta pack everything up, load it all up onto their camels, and move to the next place. Every single one of these pieces of furniture is designed for mobility. Did you, you've seen all this about the rings and the acacia poles and all of that. It's intended to be mobile because God's people are mobile. God is going to dwell in their midst in the same way that they are dwelling. It's a more beautiful tent. This is not your average Israelite tent by any stretch here. But it's a tent. <laughs> and it is mobile. And it is the people of God being united to Him, being identified with Him, God being pleased to identify Himself with the people. And that identity is visualized for us in the tabernacle, but beloved, it is cemented in these stones. When Aaron has the stones on his shoulder piece, and when he has the stones on his breast piece, and he enters in and brings these stones of remembrance before God, it is saying to God, these are your people. You own them. You've got a responsibility to them. It's not just that we're to remember God. It's that Aaron is saying to God, God, you have a duty to remember them. You have a responsibility to remember each one of these Israelites. To bless, and to keep, to forgive, and to show mercy. That stone of remembrance, that central aspect of this entire priestly garment. Listen to the words from Revelation. And it's chapter 2. Verse 17, this is to the church in Pergamum, but verse 17, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Do you think maybe John had something in mind? Do you think maybe John, as he is writing these words, has Aaron's garment in mind? I think he does. The hidden manna certainly is coming from that manna that is inside the ark. But this stone, this stone is a stone of priestly remembrance. It's saying, I am permanently marked on this priest. Every time this priest does anything, my name is there. When that priest goes before God, he carries me before God. And beloved, Jesus Christ says that is what he is for you, for me. He carries you. Not and, and this is the writer to the Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews says, listen, this is not Aaron was clearly touched with infirmity. Aaron failed right, left, and center. We know at the very least he was a rotten father. Because if he couldn't at least get it through Nadab and Abihu's thick skulls, that you can't flip out your bick and light the altar just because it went out, that's pretty bad parenting. So for anything else you want to say, at least I'm going to ding Aaron on that. But beloved, you and I know, you and I know these are broken and sinful men. These are sinners called to this work, consecrated to this work, called to sacrifice and be, but beloved, I don't want Aaron. I don't want somebody that gets me 80% of the way there. I don't want somebody who gets me 99% of the way there. Because 99% of the way there still is not reconciled to God. But beloved, Jesus Christ has completely fulfilled this. And all that stunning beauty should pale, does pale, in comparison to what it points to. That work of Jesus Christ, yes, that covering is glorious and beautiful. How much more glorious and beautiful is Christ? Yes, that priest reconciles on the basis of judgment and guilt and deals with that, but he deals with it temporarily. He's got to do it again and again and again. And beloved, it is finished is Christ's cry, His triumphant cry. It is finished. He has made the way for you to be reconciled to God. And beloved, you and I have Christ Jesus who has given to you that white stone, that pure stone, and it is the perfect stone of remembrance. You will never be forgotten. Our 
One of our catechisms asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is, my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong, body and soul, to a faithful Savior who so loved me and gave Himself for me that not one hair can fall from my head without my Heavenly Father's permission. Even that all things that happen must be ordered for my good. Beloved, that is a comfort. Because life hits you and me hard. Another side note, I've I've said often, you know, I read people who have the answers to everything, and they write their books about how they've got all the wisdom answers. And my response often is, pat them on their little head, say, run along and play, come back and talk to me when life has chewed you up and spit you out. You want to tell me about how to do this right, that right, the other right, Try raising kids. And when they're in their 20s and you've had family worship and you've tried to do everything, they point out the one way in which you failed and they spit on your name. (laughs) Those kinds of humbling things, those kinds of difficult things, are the things that cause me to cling even more to somebody who did it right. Somebody who did do things well. Somebody who did do things perfectly. And somebody who I am united to. And you are as well. He bears you before the Father. And He does so perfectly. Without any of Aaron's peccadillos, and certainly without any of your or my sins, failings, shortcomings, failures. Beloved, this is our high priest. This is one who is glorious in his beauty. 